Are you a baseball fan? I love baseball. Yeah, Who's your team? Well, I love the Jays, of course. You know, yeah. I was an Expo fan. I grew up in Montreal, I can imagine, but yeah. you know, been no team for a long time. Who wants to vote? Who wants to? Who wants to cheer for Washington? Not me. So, <laughs> not a bad team, just, though. I know, but they are the Expos. But it's That's just not true. the same. You know? <laughs> that there's a big rumor now that Montreal's supposed to have an, a team again within the next year or two. It's like in all the baseball news, they're all talking about it. So it's the it's the only sport I've ever given a shit about. So I mean, I grew it, up I grew up with the Canadians, so right. I, I got excited about hockey a little bit in my teens. But baseball and I just from the time I was a little kid, it's oh, what a great game, yeah. And that's from the Expos. That's yeah, from the Expos. But I was watching baseball before that. You know, I was I was a mostly I was a Mets fan before that. Because, oh. you know, they, they were kind of the come from behind team, yeah. you know, the dream team and all that kind of stuff. And so that's when I actually got really hooked on baseball was when the Mets won the World Series. In so Carter would have been. No, it was it? way before Carter. Oh, before yeah. Carter. Okay. Yeah. So that was the Miracle Mets, you know. Oh, oh And it then. was when the Expos okay, were kind of brand new as right, well. Right. Okay. So it was perfect timing, you know. I was already playing organized baseball and then right. we got a team and the Mets won and then. And then, uh, and then you know, the Expos got really exciting by the early '80s and stuff like that. So, but then you know, they got screwed over by the strikes and all. Boy, that did stuff. they ever! Yeah, probably the best team that yeah. year. They've different. They were the hottest team in baseball. Everybody said they were going to win 110 games that year, and they were on well on the way to doing that. But yeah, it's a real shame. Is it hard to follow the Jays? In, Not in these Halifax? days. I mean, it's fun when they're when they're eight and two in the last ten games. No, I have I I'm an addict, so I have MLB.com. Oh, okay. I watch it on my You're phone. You're serious? Yeah, even in Europe, <laughs> middle of the night, I can't sleep. It's four in the morning. There's a ball game on. <laughs> watch on my iPad <laughs> in the hotel room. I'm not kidding. Wow. I'm that I'm that bad. I can tell you, you know, like ERAs and crap. It's stupid. But <laughs> otherwise, like I don't give a shit about sports. But I really love baseball. Wow. So yeah. I'm talking to Don Ross, who I've known since well, the, year, the year aught. <laughs> in the late 70s, I think. I, I guess first so, met yeah. you. Mm-hmm. And um, so what have you been up to? No, I'm just kidding. Um, right. I've <laughs> uh, cooked some cookies once. <laughs> and, and I recently got a chance to work with you when you were involved in the, the McMichael Group of Seven Guitar Project. That's right. Have you actually seen it yet? Uh, I'm going there tomorrow. Oh, uh, good. Yeah, because tomorrow's the gala. So I've been invited to play at it. So it's uh, some sort of, I don't know, official, you know, champagne breaking against the ship. <laughs> I don't know what it is. But anyway, Rick Amitt's playing it, and me and my wife, Brooke Miller, and Callum Graham, whom I'm playing with tonight and last night, and uh, uh, a couple of other players are there. Anyway, it's like six or seven of us going to play oh, neat. at this event that they're having at the McMichael tomorrow night. And, uh, so you uh, haven't seen any of it. I've seen, uh, I just that day when we right, did the okay. filming, I saw Linda's guitar and I saw George's guitar and that's all I've seen except okay. for, you know, images on the internet. So for those who don't know, seven Canadian guitar makers made seven guitars, actually eight, but seven inspired by the works of the group of seven artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Don and, and, Don, and Tom Thompson, and Tom Thompson, so that was the special bonus eighth. Component. Yeah, that's right. And then the wild card. Don was um, included in the project as one of the performers who who plays brilliantly. Oh, it was pretty special. Like Thank we, you. you know, and we enjoyed watching you perform two or three songs in that night. Um, as featured along with people like Bruce Coburn, Jesse Cook, mm-hmm. Susie Benek, Tony Springer, bunch yeah. of people. 
beautiful project. So if you have a chance over the next little while, go to the McMichael or definitely go to the McMichael website to check out because it's a neat project. Yeah, because there are postings from the film and all that kind of yeah, stuff up yeah. there. Yeah, yeah it's great. Um, going back, tell me how you first got into music. Oh, man. Well, I grew up with a lot of music in the house. My dad is a classically trained singer. And my dad's pushing 90 and he still sings in public. I mean, he's in a he's in a choir. I was actually at a choir concert last Sunday. It was a wow. lot of fun. He sang Yesterday by the Beatles. It was very, it's very sweet, actually. And uh, so he still sings very beautifully. And so, you know, my dad was uh, taking classical vocal lessons in Montreal where we grew up at the Ecole Vincent Dandy, the big music conservatory. And um, as, as a hobby or as a like was he pursuing this as a career? he was he's my dad's basically a frustrated performing musician he uh he got married really young and started having kids really young but I, I think his goal when he was in his late teens early 20s was to be a professional singer and uh he sort of expressed that to me a few times but you know yeah started having kids it was the 1950s or whatever and it was just like as hard as it is to be a musician now, it was like 15 times harder back then. Yeah. And um, I have photographs of him, you know, singing in supper clubs in Montreal with the Nat Raider Orchestra. And so, you know, kind of wild to think my dad had this kind of part-time musician life. But uh, uh, he decided to study engineering and have a real job. So I think vicariously, he's always taken a huge amount of pleasure in the fact that he at least sired one musician because because uh, he really wanted to be one, and uh, so my dad is still my my biggest booster. I mean, I, it's 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 kind of embarrassing actually. I mean, in a very sweet way. I mean, if he didn't do this, it would be worse. But you know, I basically, I if I go anywhere with him, you know, I could take him to buy groceries now in Halifax, and and he'll and he's got this voice, you know, of an operatically trained man, and he'll he'll be he'll be flirting with the girl behind the cash and say, well, my son here is a world-class musician. You should look him up on YouTube. He always calls it YouTube. Anyway, he's hilarious. Wow. And they said that. But he still performs. Yeah, it's lovely. And, and he, uh, you know, my mom died a bunch of years ago and my, my, my mom, my mom kind of made my prom, my dad promise that he would keep going to church for some reason. And I realized the only reason why he was ever going to church was so he could sing in the choir. You know, and so now it's like he he's he feels that the, the church is morally bankrupt and he doesn't want anything to do with it anymore. So he had to find another choir to sing with. So he sings at this choir that does hits from the 50s and 60s and stuff like that. <laughs> Just really, it's really not his thing. And yet he's having a great time being able to sing again, which is great. So that's kind of where it started. And I was grew up listening to his records. He always had a lot of Bach and Mozart and Beethoven going on. And so... I got a, a good dose of like, you know, heavy duty, long hair music growing up. And then of course it was the era of Beatles and Led Zeppelin and all that kind of stuff. And that was really what spoke to me, but I became a massive funk and R and B fan. I mean, I just, from the time I was a little kid. So my favorite, I mean, I'd go out and buy Sly and the Family Stone singles and, you know, the Barquets and Parliament Funkadelic and all that stuff. That was my jam. I love that stuff. So, so. What, what was it about that? that I think part you? of it was growing up in Montreal. Montreal was like a super receptive city for music from kind of everywhere, very often that hadn't quite gotten traction in the rest of Canada yet. So things like soul and funk and R&B were huge. Mm -hmm. In fact, Montreal was 
the only Canadian stop for a lot of Motown bands early on. Uh, they'd be touring the Northeastern States and they'd make one run up to play in Montreal because they always hmm. had a huge reception. And same with bands from Britain, you know, even among Francophones would, would really take off like crazy. Right. And then progressive rock in the 70s, yeah. bands like Gentle Giant and stuff like that. They, they were like gods in Montreal. They'd play the Forum and they'd play Toronto and they'd come to a club, you know. Yeah. So it was a really interesting, very fertile place to be a music lover because you heard such an eclectic mix of stuff on the radio. We had things like Shome FM in Montreal, which had the most chaotic playlist. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. You'd hear like a, you know, an, an easy listening pop song and then some really angular tune by some Quebec prog rock band or something, you know, <laughs> and then they, and they would, the DJ spoke English and French. It was fantastic. Right. You know, so it's kind of a fun time to grow up. You played the piano initially. Yeah. I, I taught myself how to play the piano a little bit. And as a kid, because my dad decided that he really wanted to get better at piano and he needed something to sort of uh, practice his vocal stuff too. And it was just, a, it was better than a recorder, which was his other option. And uh, so I, I started figuring out the piano and then a guitar entered my house when I was eight years old. My uh, sister, who's 10 years older than me, had just finished high school and she was at a, a boarding school. And we were in Montreal and because of where we lived in Montreal, there wasn't uh, there's this funny glitch in the system where my parents could take advantage of private schools and get them publicly funded hmm. um, because they didn't like the schools that my my older siblings had the opportunity to go to in our part of Montreal. So my sister got to attend a, a, a girls' boarding school just across the line in Ontario, and the Quebec government paid for it. And... Uh, uh, so she had this really cool education at a, a very arts intensive school and, uh, she was in the school band and she played guitar and clarinet. And so just as she was graduating, the nuns got this huge grant, uh, you know, somebody willed them a bunch of money to buy a bunch of new instruments for the, the school band. And so my sister got to take home her beat up old guitar and her plastic clarinet that she was playing in the, in the band and this Stella guitar that was probably made in 1297 showed up in the house. And the, the action was about a foot off the neck. But my older brother and I just took to it like flies to you know what. And, uh, and my brother's six years older than me. So he progressed really quickly. And then he would show me chords and how to bend a note and how to do tremolo and all this kind of stuff. So he was kind of my first teacher. What were you playing? I was playing all kinds of stuff. My, the first riff I figured out was... Uh, Thank you for letting me be myself again by Slime Family Stone because I had I had the single, so that one little two bar guitar riff, you know, that's the basis of the whole song. When I figured that out, I just thought, you know, I had won the prize. I was was so pre, and I figured out that ninth chord. It was like, wow, that's so cool. And then uh, I was also learning folk songs out of books and all kinds of stuff, and uh, figuring out Beatles tunes and stuff. And then when I was a little bit older. I started listening to stuff. Remember, there's this rare earth tune and it had this really great horn line in it. So I was teaching myself how to play the horn line and also hold the bass line down and stuff. I didn't realize, but what I was playing was what's now called fingerstyle guitar. Right. But I kind of abandoned a flat pick early on and started playing multiple lines. And by the time I was 13, 14, I had all these arrangements of my favorite tunes. Plus, I'd started writing tunes that did kind of the same thing. So, um, 
unwittingly and kind of in a closet, I came up with my own wonky style of fingerstyle playing. What, was Coburn a big influence back then? Finally, I, fir- I heard him for the first time when I was 14. And uh, it was kind of like the lights went on. I, I said, what the hell? Listen to what you can do on one guitar. Mm-hmm. The tune that really did it for me was, uh, well, a whole lot of my friends in high school were saying, I, th- I think you'd like Bruce Coburn's music. You should change this guy, Bruce Coburn. So it took me a while to figure out that he, he didn't spell his name like it was pronounced. And I finally <laughs> found him in the bins in the record store. And so I thought, okay, well, he's got, at that point, he's got four albums out. I'll buy them in order. So I save up my allowance. I bought his first record, which I really liked. You know, it's kind of laid back, very, very pensive kind of record. And I thought, oh, that's the thing. I like that fine. And I bought his second record. And he started putting, I guess on his third record, he started putting instrumental tunes on. Mm-hmm. And his fourth record, I heard Foxglove. And I, my brain just about exploded. I, I just, that knocked me out. And I thought, that's an amazing tune. I, I want to play tunes that sound like that. So I figured out what tuning he was in and learned the tune off the record, you know, putting dropping the needle on the... the How disc. easy was that, though, to do that, to well, figure it out? Figuring it out mostly was just a matter of listening to the open strings. And by that point, I'd been playing long enough, and I developed a, a certain amount of ear training and, and had figured out, you know, how the scales worked and stuff like that, that I knew he wasn't in standard tuning, and I could hear his bottom string was tuned way down to a C. So I thought, okay, well, it must be based on C because it sounds like the piece is in C. So I figured out what the open... And I went, oh, he actually tunes to a chord. He tunes to a C chord. Isn't that cool? So um, that was kind of my first inkling that, oh, you can actually tune to these open chord tunings. I had I had used altered tunings already, drop D tuning or tuning my second string up to a C to make certain chords easier to play. But I had never... Uh, tuned at that point i never thought of tuning my guitar to an actual chord you know so that was a, a big revelation so yeah he was a huge giant influence at, by that point yeah. i just recently heard an interview with him and he was talking about how, how huge the blues influenced them yeah especially yeah. like mississippi john hurt and people yeah. like that yeah. was that any like when you talk about different kind of tuning was blues ever a path you went through? To be honest, no. I, I kind of funny, I, I grew up, I guess I was influenced mostly by what I had access to. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to understand too that, um, I mean, we're contemporaneous, so you you know what it was like. There was no internet. There was, uh, plus there was the added complication of being uh, one of the very few English-speaking families in an almost 100% Francophone part of Montreal. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I grew up speaking French, no problem, you know, so I could have friends and visit the neighbors and all that kind of stuff. But it was a, it was like living on another planet. Yeah, uh, it was it was like you were somewhere between Canada and Europe. You were on an island somewhere, and you you, I mean, if you turned on the television, there was Charles Aznavour, or there was Mireille Mathieu, or all these you know singers that had international francophone careers. And you turned on the radio, there'd be a lot of French language music and then English pop songs from the UK and the States and stuff. But it was really a funny time. I kind of felt like, in a way, I really wanted to follow this music thing up. But I, I kind of found that uh, just being in a, in a very French-speaking island, basically, uh, I had if I wanted to hear a lot of the music that the rest of the world was hearing I really had to like I had to go way downtown go to a record store and ask a lot of questions and so 
I didn't ever really hear much blues. The only blues music I think I, I grew up with listening to at all was Johnny Winter. Okay. My older brother brought home his live record that came out in the early 70s, which I still have in my car on, on you know, heavy rotation. I love that album. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, I, that was electric blues, but it was so good. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, wow, this is incredible. So I, I have to say, I didn't really discover the blues growing up. I've, I've learned how to play in a bluesy way since. Uh, and some of my tunes are very bluesy and they use blues language, but I've never been known as a blues player. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I just find it interesting how much it seemed to have influenced Bruce Colburn. Yeah. And, and, and I guess you were more influenced by Bruce Colburn. Yeah, as exactly. To... Yeah. I kind of missed the whole Mississippi John Hurt, Big Bill Brunsey, Reverend Gary Davis thing. I was completely illiterate with those players and to this day, I don't even know if I would be able to identify them. That's how bad it is. It's it's like when when you play fingerstyle guitar, people say, "Oh, you must have listened to a lot of Chet Atkins." And I honestly never heard his music until I was about thirty, and I, had, I didn't even know who he was. So that's how in the dark I was. Like, I, I, well, it seems to have worked out for you, though. <laughs> yeah, and in the end, you know, I mean, what he did, I admire it, but it's not my bag at all. You know? so, so who else did you search out other than Bruce? So when you hear the song and you think, oh my God, that's what I want to do, do you just follow Bruce? or do you, Yeah, I think, I think Bruce was probably my biggest like guitar influence for a long time. And then I didn't really latch on to anybody else until... I discovered people like John Renborn and that was probably my twenties. I found his music and thought it was great. And then I uh, really enjoyed, um, I remember I was living in New York city. I was a student and I, there was a show that came on WNYC that's still on the air now, but we're talking like 20, 30, 34 years ago or something. Uh, it's a show called new sounds. It's still hosted by the same guy to this day, uh, John, I forget his name now. Anyway, um, I would tend to drift off around 10.30 at night. So I had a little boom box, you know, cassette player. And so what I would do is I would stay up as late as I could. And I was, as I was drifting off, I'd press play and record with WNYC playing. And in the morning, I'd listen to t- uh, new sounds. I'd put on an extra long cassette in there. And there was one day that he, f- he featured a whole bunch of guitar players. And I didn't really care for too much of what he played, except for the very first tune by a French guitarist named Pierre Bensouzin. And this piece called Nice Feeling, and which I to this day I think is one of the most beautiful tunes I've ever heard. And that was another light going on moment. I thought, wow, that's incredible. I mean, this, this incredibly fluid playing and really free and very improvisatory and it was great. So I discovered his music. And then the, the, other, the other big moment was when I first heard Michael Hedges' music. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I remember I picked up a Wyndham Hill sampler just to listen on my Walkman, you know, on my my rides to and from school or something. And uh, the first tune came on was Aerial Boundaries. And I listened to it. I thought, that's incredible sounding. I think that's one guitar, but I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. And I figured, oh, yeah, he must be doing ostinato patterns with his left hand. And then tapping bass notes and playing notes between that's so you incredible. can visualize this whole thing yeah i could sort of because i'd been playing already most of my life but i had n- it had never occurred to me to do the things he was doing and i thought what an innovative musician that's mm-hmm. incredible um and the result of course was an incredible piece of music like a really great sounding tune that of course there was no video attached to it it wasn't like you were being impressed by the technique right you just heard this fabulous thing happening so then I discovered his music and went to see him 
the first time he came through Toronto. And that's when I discovered the harp guitar, which I play now and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So he and I became buddies, um, you know, and sort of would drop in on each other when I was in California or he was here and we never actually ended up playing any music together ever. We almost did once, but then he, the tune I wrote for us to record together, I finished just days before he died in an accident. So, mm -hmm. yeah. But so There's a song called Michael, 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 yeah, that's which the, that's, oh, the, that's the, tune. the tune. That's oh, the tune. Okay. And it was supposed to be a duet. And then I was leaving space for him in the duet because I'd written an earlier tune called Afraid to Dance that I thought we would do together. And when he heard it, he just says, it's such a good solo tune. Just leave it the way it is. <laughs> Write something with some space in it for me. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so it took me a couple of years, but I finally finished the other tune. And then, yeah, then he, he passed away. So I just, I filled in the, the blanks that I imagined him doing and then turned it into a solo tune. Okay, so before that, or around this period, you're still not a full-time musician. I was a full-time musician from the time I was... It took me a long time to sort of get around to it, but I was really, really full-time by 1989, so I would have been 28 years old. So, okay, so I don't know if you're okay with talking about this, and if you're not, that's totally fine. <laughs> right? But there was a subway ride that I always remember, and I, it happened, like, I think you, we were around Davisville and Eglinton on the Young Street line in Toronto. And you said, I'm thinking going to school for priesthood. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. And it just, it left a, a, an indelible mark on, on me. And I, and I, I thought, wow, because this one religion is not very close to me. And, and I just, just never knew anybody who would pursue that. And mm -hmm. so when you said that, and I think I got off at Eglinton, so I didn't get to talk to you more about it, but it was just like one of these final thoughts of, hey, I'm thinking going to priesthood. And I thought, wow. So tell me about that. And, and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a part of my bio I often skip over only because it even alienates myself now when I talk about it. Sorry, do you but mind no, 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 I don't mind. I really don't mind talking about it. I'm being, I'm being flippant. But um, at one point, like I, I was raised by a very Catholic mother. So at one point I, I felt a certain kind of comfort or comfortableness in that whole milieu. And uh, so, yeah, I actually did um decide finally to become a seminarian and i joined this organization called the franciscans it's you know it's a roman catholic religious order and um and this is in massachusetts yeah first i went, I went to massachusetts for a year and then uh in western massachusetts and then i was in new york city for a year that's when i was listening to you know new sounds okay. at 11 o'clock are you at playing night. at this time yeah, I was playing all the way through that. I mean, I was writing a lot of the tunes that ended up on my first album and everything. It's like I never stopped playing and never stopped writing. But I wasn't playing live anymore. And uh, I had just finished my music degree. And uh, so right, right out of music school, I went into the seminary. And I <clears throat> was with the Franciscans for three years. And uh, I was about six weeks away from taking first vows with them. And then I thought, you know what? I realized I don't even think I believe in God. <laughs> it, sort of, it took me that long. It took me that long to realize that that I had never felt an affinity with the whole idea of believing in God. What I actually liked about what I was doing was I, I liked the intellectual challenge of studying philosophy, and I liked the the intellectual tradition of the church. But I didn't like the church, and I didn't like this whole kind of what I realized was a nutty thing I would have done if I had taken vows. It would have been crazy to do. So, so did that realization, does, does it just come to you or? It, it was something that I, 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 you know, I mean, I was still young. Right. And so it's like, finally, when I left the community, I left when I was 24. So 
by 24, I think I finally had figured some stuff out about myself mostly. And also there was stuff going on. I was very naive. So there was a, a lot of stuff going on that was going over my head that I didn't realize was going on. I think most what, of us are at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but I mean, I was naiver than most maybe. And, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that has a lot of the scandals that have come out of the church that we've, we've become more aware of in the nineties and the thousands right. and the 2010s and stuff. Um, a lot of that stuff, a lot of what was leading up to that stuff was happening back then. And I, I had an inkling something wasn't right, but I wasn't sure what it was. I couldn't really put my finger on it. And I thought, well, I'm getting creeped up by this. I don't want to be stuck with a bunch of celibate men for the rest of my life. And, uh, so I left and, um, and very shortly thereafter, I, I stopped any relationship with the church at all. And then was that difficult or not difficult? It was actually not. As soon as I left, I, I, I was, you know, when you go that far into something, I mean, I, I've always been the kind of person who says, well, I should really try something, you know, uh, not, not LSD. It wasn't really my thing. I was never into drugs, but as far as life experience goes, you know, it's like, well, if I, if I think something's intriguing, I should at least explore it right. and see. And at that point in my life, it's like, what else you got to lose? You're young. You don't really have a, a, an idea of who you are yet or what you want to be when you grow up. So, I tried it and I, and I, I realized that I was getting disillusioned by a lot of what I was experiencing and seeing in the, and the interpersonal relationships. And I just thought, you know, this, this could be toxic. I could see how this could become toxic. So and even though I personally had no bad experiences, that nothing happened to me, right. that nobody did anything to me. Nobody forced me into something I didn't want to do. And, uh, and I didn't have any, any experiences, any bad experiences at all. But I realized, no, this is this is not a, a thing that I want to be a part of. And it wasn't a, a big, you know, oh, this is BS, this is crap, I'm out of here kind of feeling. It was, it was more like you're realizing you're with the wrong girlfriend or whatever, you know. Right. And then, so I, I left and then, uh, you know, and I felt sad when I left. I even went back when, when the guys took their vows, I went back and played at it and all that kind of stuff. And then that was just, there, that's it, I'm done, you know. So during this time... Why you were pursuing it? Did your music change? And then why you decided not to do it, not to follow that path? Did your music change? Um, I think my music actually didn't change. It was, okay. it was. I had sort of by the time I was twenty four, twenty five, I'd written a bunch of tunes that I still play. That where I think on a musical level, I had sort of discovered who I was. So my musical identity was very strongly formed by that point, and to a point where by the time I started doing it full time, three or four years later, I, I realized that the, the way that I could have a career as a musician was to get up on a stage and play my freaking guitar. You know, like when I was in music school, I was wondering like, well, should I be a composer? I don't know. Should I teach at a university? Should I, I, I wasn't sure what to do as a musician. The idea of being a solo guitarist was about the last thing I ever would have considered. I thought that that's who the hell wants that? You know, I, I wouldn't go to a solo guitar concert, you know, I just, it made, made no sense to me. But when I was finishing up, um, my music degree, I was in a band and, uh, I was actually the bass player. I was the bass player and singer in this rock band. And during a break one day at rehearsal, 
um, I was just sitting in the corner playing a fingerstyle guitar tune that I wrote just for myself, just for fun, while everybody else was you know chatting and stuff. And then the the guitar player from the band, who was really good, great electric player, he came up to me. He says, "That sounds so good." I said, "What?" He says, "That tune you're playing. What is that?" I said, oh, "I wrote it." And he says, "Man, I'd pay money to hear that." <laughs> And I'm like, no, yeah, yeah, you should play this live. And it's like, what the hell is he thinking? Seriously, I thought he was on drugs. I was like, no, I, I, nobody wants to hear this stuff. And, you know, you'd be surprised. And then that's when I discovered, okay, Michael Hedges, Wyndham Hill Records, all this stuff. Ah, there is, you know, a niche audience for this. So I thought, well, um, I'd be happy with a niche audience. I don't, I don't care if it's millions of people. I, you know, I could be one guy on stage with thousands of fans. That's a that's a living, right? So um, that's when I realized that that's, okay, that's what I do best. I play the guitar, I write a lot of tunes, uh, I sing occasionally, people like that. Why not strike out doing that? It's been 30 I'm years. I'm surprised you don't sing more. Yeah, well, the, people get give me grief that I don't sing more. It's funny. You're always damned, I think, by what, by what you do first. You know, it's true, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you look at somebody who, who makes movies, right? They're, they're up on... Or even if, even if you're known for funny movies and you do a serious... Oh, he's not a serious actor. Or yeah. She's not a serious actress. And, uh, or, or if you're a singer and you make a movie... Well, they're really a musician, a terrible actor. So even they, they might make a nice movie or they might make a nice record or whatever. You're damned by what you do first. And it's the same within the music world. If you, My first thing that I put out, I, I won this guitar competition in the States and Duke Street Records of Happy Memory signed me on the on the strength of that and so i put out this completely instrumental 13 tune you know, like 80 minute long album because oh, you had won that fingerstyle championship yeah that, that's how and they, you just felt they, that you shouldn't be singing is that correct no they they wanted an instrumental record. Oh, okay, okay. they sort of had this sort of a division of a label right. that was like a jazz label so they said well let's let's we'll put this under that you know umbrella so i ended up putting out this instrumental guitar record and then uh, they wanted a follow-up really quickly, so I had to like quickly scribble out a bunch of new tunes. I snuck on some wordless vocal in one song, and they said, "Yeah, yeah, just keep it instrumental." Keep wordless it instrumental. vocal? Yeah, just like, na na na, oh, okay, na okay. that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was as much singing I did in that album. But then by my third record, I just said, "F this, I'm just going to do whatever I want." So I did an album with four vocal tunes and eight instrumental tunes. And then when I was signed to Sony, I mixed it up a little bit. You know, there's always a few vocal tunes in every record. But then what happened was uh, I got signed to an international label in the States, and uh, they were like, no, we just want the guitar stuff. You know, that's all we do. So how does that make you feel? Well, it wasn't that they didn't like my singing. It's just that that's what they were good at marketing. Right. So And they said, look, your tunes are... You know, they like them a lot. Your tunes are really strong. Just go ahead and... So I, I gave them three completely instrumental records. And um, so... And then most of the videos that have been on YouTube are me playing my, my guitar. So a lot of people didn't even know that I... Or a lot of people still don't know that I sing until I do on stage. And they say, well, gee, I, I like your voice. So I, I get a lot of positive <laughs> feedback about the voice. So the latest record I just put out, there's three vocal tunes on it. And... Um, I did an album in 2009 that was all vocal. So, you know. But I, other than the record company, which is a big deal, but I mean, when you play live, do you ever feel that there is a different vibe coming off the audience when you start singing? Yeah, for sure. And like last night I played at Hughes Room here and uh, 
I sang two tunes. I mean, I was, it was a duet show. So we were doing a lot of our guitar duets and then Callum was doing some solo stuff. And I had like four solo turns in the show and I did two vocal tunes out of the four. And uh, yeah, got a lot of, oh, I'd love to hear your voice more. And so um, personally, I would like it to be like 50-50. Right. But the problem is there's always, I, I, I mean, I, it's bad to try to anticipate what your audience wants. That's not a good place to come from. But at the same time, there's a very large contingent of shut up and play your guitar fans. <laughs> and there's also a large contingent of people who say, oh, I wish you'd sing all the time. But you can't really, you can't really please everyone. Right. right? So, uh, well, how do you approach that? Because you've, you've done a lot of albums. Mm-hmm. I think it's like close to 20 or something. Close to 20, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so... I mean, one, I don't know how you come up with the next project. And I presume you always have new ideas. But, sure. I mean, how do you approach that idea of do you do it for yourself or do you do it for your audience? At this point, I have to say this past record, I really felt like I just want to make myself happy. Right. And so it's interesting because I don't write as much music as I used to. Um, partly because? because, you know, it just, I mean, I, I, it's you're always worried about repeating yourself. Hmm. And I've written close to 200 solo guitar tunes over the years. That's a lot of music. And it's kind of like, okay, it's not like I feel like I've said everything I want to say, but I want to make sure that, you know, tune number 197 doesn't sound like tune number 14 by mistake kind of thing. So I'm a lot choosier about what I write. So I only had, for the new record, I only had like five new instrumental uh, uh, um, original tunes. Didn't have any new vocal tunes that I'd written, but I had some arrangements that I'd been working on. So I just thought, I'm going to record whatever I want. And uh, that's been more and more the way I approach it. Just record whatever I want. Don't worry about what anybody else suggests. And is the record company quite open to what you present them? Or do well, they the, the, the company I'm with now is like an internet marketing company that specializes in guitar music. So what they want for their subscribers on YouTube, which is like a million people, it's a lot of people, um, they want to market the guitar music. They've tried marketing singer-songwriters on the channel and gotten very little response. So that particular audience that subscribes to that particular YouTube channel that comes from that label are guitar heads, which I'm not. I'm just not a guitar head. But uh, really? seriously, no, I never was. I never was. I, I, I listen to so little guitar music, it's, it's funny to think about. I mean, I, I mentioned the people that really had a big influence on me. But one of the reasons why they're, they're big influences is because the, most of the rest of it I just didn't care for. I just thought it wasn't interesting. But, you know, most music, when you come right down to it, isn't that interesting. There's a few things that really shine for everyone, right? Like for each person. Mm-hmm. There's going to be like 10 or 15 or 20 artists that really turn your crank. And the rest of them are kind of like, yeah, that's all right. You know, whatever. That's okay. So that's just personal preference. And for me, the fact that it's played on the guitar does not give it any special preferential ranking at all. You know, if you play something on the guitar, don't give a poop. Is it nice sounding? Is it cool? Is it a great tune? Then you got me. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's played in the bassoon or the harpsichord or whatever it is. Knock me out, right? So uh, that's why the guitar thing doesn't really worry me. Whereas there's, there is a very large number of people who you could play chopsticks on the guitar and they'll, oh, it's on the guitar, you know? <laughs> So, so some of the stuff that that floats on YouTube, you know, that I, especially the the stuff that's all you know, tapping and slapping and percussion and 
no melody, no chord changes, just a bunch of, I mean, why don't you just play the bongos? I don't know. <laughs> I, it's, it's fine. If some people really want to, mostly they want to see it. They right, don't really, right. how it sounds doesn't really seem to come into play, you know? I want to go back a few years. Mm-hmm. I think the first thing you ever released was a cassette. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day. Uh, okay. So like I, the only other band I know was like Bare Naked Ladies who released a cassette and that mm-hmm. did well for them. Yeah. How yeah. was your, how was your cassette received? Well, the first cassette that I did was really, really a glorified demo. Okay. I, I just decided I would record everything that I did. So I did some solo guitar music. I did some piano stuff on it. I did. You know, I played all the instruments. I was playing fretless bass, and I programmed a drum machine. because I play drums, but I thought, ah, I'll just be easier to program a machine to do it. I sang, you know, and then the woman who eventually became my, my first wife, who died a few years ago, Kelly, um, she sang on the album, and I did modern music. I did traditional music. I did some jazz. I did, I did kind of, basically, really, it was just trying to get work as a player. Did it work? It did work. I got some sessions out of it, and uh, you know, and I probably sold a thousand copies at shows or whatever, and uh, so it definitely made the investment back. So I think I recorded it in like you know a couple of days, and so that was good on that level. And then I really didn't release anything. I mean, I was in a more traditional trio with my late wife, uh, and we did. A cassette album with that band which eventually became a cd it was re- was recorded properly we just didn't have the money to release a cd yet when we first did it so yeah back then that 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 calling card kind of cassette that i did which is a real dog's breakfast in terms of what's on it but it it, it got me some work and then um when i f- started recording for a real record company it was uh, a little more focused you know so in 86 when you won the national finger style championship was that a huge deal? Like, was that a game changer? Did it change your life? For me, yeah. It was actually 88. But 88, what happened was, I think the first time I went was 86. And I I found the whole thing really overwhelming. The whole competitive side. I'd never taken part in a musical competition before. Can you just give us an idea what that is, what what it's like when you go there? It's a festival, right? Yeah, it's this weird festival that happens in a really weird part of the United States. Uh, it's, uh, it's in a town called Winfield, Kansas, which is just north of the state line with Oklahoma. So it's really, it's in the, what you would call the South. I mean, right. the Northern part of Kansas is the North and the Southern part of Kansas is South, you know, <laughs> the, the twang start and everything else. Like from one side of the, of, of, a, of a street in Wichita to the other, you know, to the <laughs> South side of the street, suddenly everybody starts talking like this. And so, and it's basically a bluegrass festival, which, you know, again, I have no history with at all, but I heard about this fingerstyle guitar competition Back in the day, there was this magazine called Fretz Magazine. So it was like precursor to Acoustic Guitar Magazine. So uh, I read about it in Fretz. And I thought, okay, well, how the heck am I going to get any notice doing this thing other than just playing every single club for 14 people for the rest of my life? Ah, maybe a big competitive competitive thing might be a good thing to do. Sorry, up, up until that point, was that your reality of playing to small crowds? Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I I, w- I was getting the occasional gig, you know, and a few aficionados would kind of show up and it was okay, but I wasn't making any money. And so, you're thinking, this is my career. This is what I'm going to pursue. Yeah. I thought, I thought if I'm going to do this seriously, I got to figure out some way to make a splash. So I heard about this co- competition. 86, it scared the pants off me. 87, I came in third and I thought, okay, well, maybe if I mix it up a bit. And sure enough, the guy who came in first in 87 wrote me a letter. He said, yeah, like play really contrasting pieces. You'll win. Okay, so I went back again in 88, 
played two really contrasting pieces, got in the final, played two really contrasting pieces, and I won. And I did it all with my own music, too. Like, all the tunes were tunes I wrote. So I felt really good about that. And that got me on the local CBC in Toronto. I was living in Toronto at the time. And it was right in the middle of the Olympics that year. That was the Ben Johnson Olympics. So, <laughs> so, uh, so there was a lot of Olympic coverage. And one of the guys from Duke Street would, turned on the news. It was like the day or whatever after Ben Johnson lost his medal. Oh, maybe there's some good news today from the Olympics. And he, he saw this little blurb they did about me winning this competition. He called me the next day said, let's make a record. So that's literally what happened. Wow. So I went from winning the competition on a Thursday, getting home on a Friday, and getting a call that next. Well, I guess no, won the competition on Wednesday, got home on a Thursday, got the phone call on Friday. So one thing actually led to another uh, really quickly, and then um, made the record a couple of months later. And uh, yeah, and that started my touring career in Canada. Which I mean, I toured only Canada from 1989 to 1995. Basically, I did the occasional U.S. show. But Canada was really good to me, and CBC was really good to me. So, and now you tour the world. Now I tour mostly the world. In fact, I really miss playing in Canada. <laughs> it was really nice to play in Toronto last night. It was like, oh man, I can speak a, a language that isn't like backwards from mine, and I can, you know, make jokes. And yeah, it felt really good. So, like recently, like, like a couple of weeks ago, you were in Spain. For- yeah, I just played in Spain and Hungary and Austria and Italy and Germany. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's great. So tell me about, you know, so you, you go from sending out cassettes to winning this championship, getting mm-hmm. getting a, a label, and that's gotten you to tour across Canada. How does it, how do you grow from that to now playing all over the world? Well, very simply, in 1995, a friend of mine who used to live in Berlin, he's a Canadian, but he's a singer-songwriter, and at the time, he had just finished a contract, a uh, front page challenge had just come off the air. Right. And he was the last in-house composer for the show. So he did all their stings and bumpers and everything else for the show for about three or four years. And so he knew he was losing his job and he wanted to keep doing music. So when he lived in Germany, he lived in East Germany as a Canadian. So really wild <laughs> story. He was living in East Berlin. And uh, he used to tour over there all the time. And so he thought, well, that's something I know how to do. And I speak German, so I'm going to go back to doing that. So he talked to me and he said, well, uh, how about we tour over there together? And I said, sure. So we uh, f- made a connection with a, a guy who was booking tours. This is after the wall came down, but still, it was just after the wall, like five years after. And uh, there were still two networks. You know, uh, if you were... Uh, more familiar with the Eastern Touring Network. That's kind of where you kept touring. So you'd play in, you'd play in Berlin, but you'd also play in Dresden and Leipzig and Greifswald right. and all these Eastern towns. Whereas the 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 acts that were based in West Berlin or Bonn or Frankfurt or whatever would play the Western part of the country mostly. So the first six, I was we were going over every six, six months. So but the first six tours were almost exclusively in what used to be East Germany. With the idea of play to people, play well, hopefully they'll bring their friends the next time. Yeah, exactly. Like build a following. And it was before YouTube. It was the internet was still pretty new. And so that was kind of still the only way to really build a following. But some of the tours went really well. And uh, there was occasional dud gig or whatever. But overall, it was going better and better. And then I started getting invitations just to come on my own, mostly to guitar festivals. And I thought, yeah, I kind of think I like that idea better. So um, there's a fellow based in, in a town called Osnabrück 
Uh, his name is Peter Finger, ironically. He's a guitar <laughs> player. Um, and he runs something called Acoustic Music Records since forever. And he used to have a festival called Open Strings in, in Osnabrück. And it was a big festival. He said it just got to be logistical nightmare, so he eventually had to stop doing it. But he brought me over a few times for that festival, and that was kind of a big deal. Because one time when I played it, I got a f- the front page of the entertainment section of the Frankfurter Allgemeine, which is like the New York Times, right, over wow. there. So to see my picture on the front page of the entertainment section of the biggest newspaper in Germany kind of blew my mind. And that was like right after 9-11. And, you know, by that time, my German was good enough that I would speak to the audience only in German. And the the reviewer made this point about what a sign of hope it was that people would come from far away and speak in the local language. And it's not, you know, binds us together and I was kind of like, this is going really well. <laughs> so I've uh, played Germany at least one tour a year, sometimes two or three ever since. And uh, so Germany is a really fertile, I mean, it's a big music market. It's the third mm-hmm. biggest music market in the world. Uh, it's almost 100 million people in a country the size of your living room. So it's like you can drive from one town to the next, no problem. And, you know, their sense of distance is like, you know, what, you are going to play a, a concert a uh, hundred kilometers from here? Are you crazy? You're Canadians. You always drive your car everywhere. You know, they, and it's like you try to explain to them, well, you know, I've actually done gigs where I've had to drive three days. <laughs> anyway, so Germany's been good. And then that kind of grew into playing in other German-speaking countries just by reputation. And then when YouTube started and stuff like that. Like YouTube has been very good for you. It's right? been great for musicians all around. I mean... Uh, a lot but of I pe- can see a lot of people getting views, but not, I mean, you can put yourself out there and people might watch it, maybe not. But I don't know if people really see the benefit, whereas I get the feeling that yeah. in your case that that's drawn, giving you more audience. I think it really depends on the music and it depends on the listener too. Yeah, yeah. So if a, if a presenter is a good listener and they hear something in the music that they like, and they think, hey, I know that there's enough people in my town or my country or whatever who would dig this. Um, like, for example, I just got my first invitation to play in Korea. So I played in Japan a pile of times. I played in China a lot. Uh, and those are the two Asian, two East Asian countries I played in a lot. Um, but this, I, I've had offers to play in Korea before, which were just not very inviting. And then this time, the guy said, no, let's do this right. I'm going to a nice haul i've done this a million times i brought pat Bethany in. i brought you know, it's just like okay and he was saying yeah we're gonna i'm have, we'll have no trouble filling this hall you got a lot of fans here I'm gonna pay you this much money put, pay your plane ticket and i'm just thinking this rocks and it's because of people checking you out online that's really what it is and i, I don't mean on plenty of fish i mean on youtube yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so so um joke anyway um so the YouTube thing has been a blessing because, I mean, somebody like my friend Andy McKee went from, you know, teaching guitar lessons for 10 bucks an hour at a <laughs> music store in Kansas to suddenly being one of the biggest guitar stars in the world, all because of one song that just went completely explosive on YouTube and a tune that was already 10 years old. I mean, he wrote it when he was a teenager and suddenly everybody liked it. So, I mean, stuff like that does happen occasionally now in my case i haven't had the you know the 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 50 million view uh juggernaut but i've had a long career i've put lots of stuff online 
I've had millions of views and enough to yeah, get yeah. people interested. Obviously people say, Oh, there's more new content. He's not going away, you know? So, um, that all works. Yeah. Well, it's good that it works. Cause I get the impression like, you know, there's, when you look at what's going on in the music world, it's, it's scary. And, and, and oftentimes, you know, between streaming services and whatever, the world is changing a great deal. And I don't hear a lot of positives. And I hear a lot of musicians who are frustrated and who don't know where to go. So it's really nice to see the positive side of the Internet and how that can help an artist. Well, one thing I read a few years ago that really hit me hard in a good way was this whole, it was an article talking about how the internet has impacted musicians both positively and negatively. And of course, yes, on the recording side and the sales of merchandise and all that kind of stuff, that part's really taken a hit. So, and for a while that was about 50% of my income, Mm -hmm. you know, very often you'd justify doing a gig somewhere in some outback place or that didn't pay quite as well as what you were used to because the person would say, but people here like they buy CDs like crazy and it would, it would happen. The first time I played in Japan, um, I did a 10-date tour. This is 2000, so it was just after Napster, so people were still buying CDs a lot. Well, they still have um, Tower Records there. They still have Tower <laughs> Records. I know, like, and, and the, the, the price of a CD is still crazy compared to what we pay. Right. It's so expensive. But um, the, the promoter said, oh, yeah, like, bring 200 CDs for the tour. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound like very much for 10 dates, but whatever. And I, I sold 50 at the first gig. And he said, oh, yeah, I guess your wife's got to send you more records. <laughs> and uh, so the, the, that, that was the kind of thing that used to happen on a regular basis. Like I could really count on a large chunk of my income coming from record sales. But, of course, I was signed to labels, and they took a big chunk out of that, right. all that and all that kind of stuff. So the other side now is that I can... I can engineer my albums myself. I've got a really nice studio. I'm good at it. I can make a really good sounding record without help. And for the cost of an external drive now, I mean, it's, I've got all the equipment. And uh, I can master myself. I can, you know, uh, I can master for vinyl on my own. I, and it sounds really, my new record is like the best sounding record I've, I've made. I did 100% of it on my own. So that kind of thing I would have had to pay through the nose for mm-hmm. at least, you know, or even in, in royalty debt or whatever. And now it's like, it's so cheap to make. So that's, that's the, the other side of it. The, the distribution is really weird now, but the cost of my personal production costs are almost zero to make a record, at least on my own. There, I have a project I want to do with a full funk band. That's going to be expensive. I'll have to crowdfund that. But so that's the other weird thing you have to do now is the crowdfunding thing. But if I was to ask you who your audience is or to describe who they are, or how would you describe your audience? Would you be able to describe them? I think maybe the, the demographic, it, it's pretty widespread um, because especially since the YouTube thing started and the Facebook thing started, um, a lot of young people still glom onto the music early on. Uh, so last night, for example, I played in Toronto and I'd say about half the audience was under 30. Um, probably 15% was under 20. And then there's a bunch of people who've been fans for 25 years who showed up, a lot of gray hair as well. And um, Not that there's anything wrong with gray hair. Nothing, there's not, absolutely nothing wrong with gray hair. I speak from experience. But um, so it's it's really varied. Uh, I find... So at, it's like, 
My point was, yes. when you go to Germany, when you go to Korea, when yeah. you go to Japan, is it basically the same no. people? No. No. No, it changes by, by country, definitely. Really? In, in East Asia, it's almost exclusively a young audience. Yeah. And I'm not getting any younger, but my so, audience is the same Are they all age. guitar players, you think? <laughs> no. That's what's really cool, too. Like, I, I find, especially in Asia, um, like, especially in China, like, I, I played a show in Shanghai a year or two ago, and there were, like, 600 people there in this auditorium. Um, I'd say about 50, 50 men, women, and I'd say almost 100% under 30. Wow. So that was pretty cool. And I had to stay for two hours afterwards and get my photograph taken with almost everyone there. Uh, they bought lots of records. I signed everything you can sign from body parts <laughs> to tickets to T-shirts to CDs. So, so that's really interesting because, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a young, new audience mm -hmm. that's really Internet savvy, even though it's the Chinese Internet, so it's all very restricted. But they, uh, they clone a lot of stuff off of YouTube onto um, social networks there and stuff. So, Good thing um, you didn't have lyrics. No, I'm just kidding. There you go. Um, and then uh, Japan, it's also a, a young audience that shows up, yeah. Uh, it depends on where I play, too. Like, if I play in Tokyo, yeah, it's like a really young audience. If I play uh, Ina, you know, a little town in the middle of nowhere, yeah, it might be an older audience because it's an older demographic that just lives there. But, uh, and also you're one of the few things that's come through. So, you know, everybody wants to see it. <laughs> so it's, it's a different thing, but no, it does change by, by country. And I find in, in Germany too, it's, it's uh, completely wide ranging men, women, young, old. Yeah. It's cool. Do you, are you playing as much as you want to play at this point in your career? Uh, yeah. I think if I toured any more than I do, uh, I would feel a, like I was never home. Right. B, it would be a little hard on the marriage. Uh, and, uh, I would feel too tired all the time. I mean, touring is exhausting. Right. So, um, so you've cut back. Yeah. I think I used to tour more. Uh, I used to spend more time on the road and, um, uh, also for a little while, um, a couple of years ago, I was not only touring, but I was also teaching a, oh, a yeah, student exciting. in Beijing a month at a time. So I was away a lot and I just... And you also the, taught at Dalhousie. I was teaching at Dalhousie University for a while, yeah. And I was just doing too much, too many things. And I mean, it's good to be busy, but um, I, I sometimes, like I never think of myself as a workaholic. And yet I realize I work a lot. And I and being self-employed musician, if you're going to make a living at it, you, you end up, you almost think about it from the moment you wake up to the moment you fall asleep. Mm -hmm. I'm still sometimes writing emails as I'm dozing off in bed. You know, it's not good for you. It's bad, but the work's got to get done. And I'm, it, it, the DIY element is stronger now than ever. Was there in this projection to where you are today, which sounds really impressive. And I'm you're playing theaters around the world from the guy who used to send out cassettes. Right, or whatever. Right. <laughs> was there ever a point where it was difficult was, has it always been this this upward climb and, and seeing results? Or was there every time where you might have doubted what you're doing or questioned the world being a musician? I think there's been maybe three times I can really think about where I've really thought, I, I, maybe I should be doing something else for a living. Um, I think it, it, it was times when there were big transitions going on in the quote unquote industry. I hate calling it the industry because it's just like, <laughs> I think the music industry was an industry at one point. Right. It's, it's kind of a, 
it's very much a cottage industry these <laughs> days. Um, and, uh, and there's, you know, a whole lot of people doing little things that sometimes, uh, that sometimes blow up at least for a little while, but you know, it's just, it's just not the thing it used to be. Mm-hmm. So at various times, like when, when Napster first happened, I remember thinking like, you know, WTF, this is so stupid. I mean, like I make these records and people are just going to take them. Like they're not even asking, you know, right. I remember having this, this, uh, television debate. I was invited onto the show on news world or what it's called now, CBC news network. Uh, I don't know if you remember it. It was, um, uh, Avi Lewis. Right. And, uh, he had this TV show where they basically they would sort of do point counterpoint kind of stuff. They would get a panel together and there were, there was a panel of myself and I think one other musician, a former musician who was a media personality who has been a very bad boy recently. I won't mention his name because nobody should ever say his name ever again, but he was one of the panelists and uh, a woman in Washington, you know, by satellite and stuff. And we were all debating the, the pros and cons of so-called sharing, you know? Right. And, uh, Finally, uh, Abby said, so Don, you know, if, if your music's getting heard by more people, what's the problem with that? I said, hey, I want my music to be heard by as many people as possible. I said, it's just that the problem with this form, this way of doing it is that it cost me and a company a whole lot of money to make these records. And we used to count at least on a return, at least of some of the investment. Right. And now we can't. And nobody ever asked me. And everybody kind of went, oh, yeah. So you got a point there kind of thing. I could see the whole, you know, everybody was sort of like, no, this, that, and the other thing, this pro con. And then I said, but nobody ever asked. And then, yeah, I guess you're right. You know, it was like kind of, it was a chill for a second as everybody let that sink in. So that was how I was feeling at the time. Like, mm-hmm. couldn't I at least been, have been, could I have at least had somebody confer with me or could I have been consulted at some point? So that just felt like the rug being pulled out. Uh, and at that point I felt very discouraged, but then I realized between that and a few other things, and also my, I've had some very tumultuous things happen in my life, uh, you know, from my wife dying to a child dying and all these things where I, I just didn't really know if my, what I was doing for a living made any sense anymore. I mean, it was just, you know, questioning, I mean, I got over it, but questioning, how just, long does it take you to get over something like that? I mean, I guess well, you never get over it. No, but. you never you never stop grieving people, certainly. But, you know, my, my late wife died in 2001. And I was a single dad for four years until I remarried. And I had two little girls and a, and a, and a teenager who was already pretty addicted to a lot of substances who eventually died at 25 himself. And I couldn't save him, you know. I've never even smoked dope. I mean, I just have no clue, right? So... Uh, all that kind of crap happened. And at various times I thought, you know, am I doing the right thing with my life? And I realized, well, what I'm doing for a living isn't hurting anybody and it's not hurting my family. They often come with me on the road. You know, I make sure that they're always well taken care of. So they get a lot of love. So I, I, there were various points of self doubt and various times when I just thought, well, maybe I should be doing something like being a plumber, you know, or I just come home every day or what, I don't know. So, but, but those are transition-y things where life happens and you have to deal with stuff. But also what I realized, too, being a musician, uh, with all these things, the, the rules changing literally every six months because mm-hmm. of the online world, um, 
the rule is adapt or die. You know, so if you if you can roll with things and say, oh, vinyl's hot again. Okay, I'll I'll go into debt and make vinyls and make the money back that way. You know, like my new record, I just got the vinyls last week. Costs a flipping fortune because I go for first class. I get them direct metal master. Get them printed in Germany. I, you know, it's crazy, but yeah, I end up with the best product. Yeah, yeah. And people really appreciate that. And uh, that's something I wouldn't have had to do ten years ago. But now I got to go through all that hassle. But I love it at the same time. I mean, it's a challenge. But if you're not ready to roll with the vicissitudes, I mean, it's it's like being on a big boat and you never know what the weather's going to be like. You have to be able to stay upright. That's all. <laughs> Just going back to what you previously said, and I know life life can always be difficult, and it is for most people because if you live long enough, yeah. you're going to have your ups and downs. Was music ever a healer for you? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I would say that after my first wife passed away, um, you know, I went through a really significant writer's block. I mean, grief-induced writer's block. I was writing a lot of music until about a year before she died. And just you know, Things just got so out of hand with her cancer. And then, um, then after she died, it was like I had to keep playing live because I had to keep paying bills. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was still playing a lot of music, but I, I wasn't really writing and I didn't even feel like writing music. I just thought, Ugh, you know, what's the point. And then, uh, about two years later after she died, um, suddenly all these new tunes were, you know, all those came spilling out. And how do you explain that? Well, you know, for me, it was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not somebody who wears his heart on his sleeve. That's one of the reasons I don't write lyrics. I'm afraid to write lyrics. I mean, I've, only, I've written a few sets of lyrics, but not for a long time. One of the things that, that worries me about writing lyrics is that I'm afraid I'm going to reveal too much about myself. I don't really mind having a conversation even like this, you know, just about stuff that's gone on in my life. But I don't really want to, like, for example, if I, if, I, if I had broken up with a girlfriend and written a song about a relationship, that just like, that feels like a backhanded <laughs> thing to do. Like, you, you shouldn't do that to someone, you know? Somebody you cared about. You don't should d- see the things she's been saying about <laughs> on the internet. Anyway, uh, uh, so there are things like that. Like I, but uh, what happened was I, I wrote these tunes that suddenly were like, some of them like really positive sounding. Like I wrote this tune. I, I, even, I even wrote this tune. You know, like I was still just reeling from having to bring my kids on tour with me as a single dad and homeschooling them for a year because it was the only thing that made any sense. Uh, you know, tour schooling them. <laughs> there was seven and a nine year old trailing after you on the road. Wow. You're trying to keep up with their French lessons. It's, it was really trucky. But um, at the just before we went on a tour together, the, one of my daughters was on the phone. She was nine years old, telling her friend all these different parts of Europe she was going to go to with her dad. And her, I could hear her friend through the receiver saying, you're so lucky. And she said, yeah, it's fun being lucky. And I just <laughs> written this really, really up-tempo, happy sort of Motown-y tune. Yeah. And I called it, it's fun being lucky. And I just lost my wife, you know. And it was like, it was like you know, when the, when the, you hear about like uh, the Pathetic Symphony. Tchaikovsky wrote it at the ha- happiest point in his life, you know. He wrote this really dark sounding, you know, sometimes you just do the opposite just to even your life out a little bit, mm-hmm. right? So I was at this really difficult time and I was just decided I'm going to write really triumphant music and just help that. That'll help clear my head and make me feel, I'm a really positive person anyway. So mm-hmm. it's, it's hard for me to, 
as, as much as I was grieving and as much as life was hard and as much as I missed my wife and as much as I was worried about my kids, I just thought, you know, if I fall apart, then everything falls apart. Right. So I may as well just be a happy guy. <laughs> well, it makes sense. You know, I, I've, I've admired you from afar. <laughs> and um, having this discussion with you has kind of reminded me why. So no, thank thanks, you so Marco. much for doing My pleasure. This. I, mean, My I know pleasure. you have Absolute to pleasure. get to a gig tonight. I really appreciate you stopping by in your busy schedule. Cool. But um, thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll do it again. Definitely. <laughs>